Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the one and only Mayor Culpa podcast, now on the mighty Midas Touch Network. So look for the blue banner to find all future episodes of our show. And follow us at MidasTouch.com. And now for the show. Over the weekend, Joe Biden did the polar bear plunge with his grandkids in the frigid waters off Nantucket. But at the same time, the president had his hands firmly on the levers of power. It's reported that he was actively monitoring the four-day ceasefire and hostage release in the Middle East. The Biden administration, in coordination with other world leaders from Qatar, Israel and Egypt, brokered the deal with Hamas that enabled the exchange. I'll say that building coalitions in wartime seems to be a particular strength of the president. So let us not forget how he pulled NATO back together when Russia brutally invaded Ukraine. It's obvious that on the world stage, Uncle Joe has some clout. So regarding the Middle East, Biden expressed empathy for the trauma the hostages have experienced. He also reiterated the need for a two-state solution and long-term peace in the region. And here's what he said, and I quote, As we look to the future, we have to end the cycle of violence and resolve to pursue a two-state solution where Israelis and Palestinians can one day live side by side with equal measure of freedom and dignity. He concluded that Hamas unleashed this terrorist attack because they fear nothing more than Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in peace. Sadly, the war is set to resume on Monday. Now, you wouldn't know it, but the president has been on a bit of a roll lately. The recent state visit with China's chair, Xi Jinping, was a sign that things have thawed between the two governments, since the detection of Chinese spy balloons floating over the United States earlier this year. Tensions have been high and a fear that China might align with Russia and blow up the world had also been looming. But let's face it, the United States has more to offer than Putin, and the summit has already benefited the US and China economically. There was a bounce in tech and the stock market. Flights were resumed between the two countries for the first time since the pandemic, and the overall tone of the visit was conciliatory, except when it came to Taiwan. Beijing considers the island part of its territory, with no right to independently conduct diplomatic relations, or really do anything without China's consent. But the United States maintains unofficial relations with Taiwan and still supports what's left of their fragile democracy. But back to our economy. Biden is the first United States president in 50 years to outpace China's economy. Didn't happen under Trump, it happened under Biden. So therefore, Bidenomics is working. Over the weekend, gas prices, airfares, and food prices all were down. Black Friday was spectacular for retailers and consumers alike. 
Gift prices are down and wages are up. And unemployment is way down to record lows, lower than ever before. We just have to keep President Biden's accomplishments front and center as we go into what promises to be a very fucking contentious election year. Former White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain tweeted, Biden has delivered the largest economic recovery plan since Roosevelt, the largest infrastructure plan since Eisenhower. He is the most judges confirmed since Kennedy and the second largest healthcare bill since Johnson, plus the largest climate change bill in history. Klain is right and don't let Republicans tell you anything different. And watch how they come for Kamala Harris too. Women of color are MAGA's favorite punching bag. And Republicans generally hate strong Democratic females. The GOP has no real policies and a lot of mediocre candidates. So, they will try and pull a Hillary on the vice president. They'll say she isn't nice, that she doesn't smile enough, yada fucking yada. Who cares? She has helped to lead the administration's efforts on voting rights, on women's rights, and workers' rights. There's been a coordinated effort to make it seem as if the first female vice president is invisible and worse, inept. The lies first surfaced on social media and conservative radio. Now, it's talking point with some Democrats and Biden supporters too. I mean, enough already, my friends. It's fucking enough. She's doing an excellent job. And Ms. Harris won't be removed from the re-election ticket because as the president says, she is the future. There's a woman from our past, however, who supported many of the same initiatives as Kamala Harris, and she too met with some skepticism. Unlike most first ladies, she was her husband's equal in every sense of the word. And I'm speaking, of course, of Rosalind Carter, who passed away last week at the beautiful age of 96. Mrs. Carter was a champion of mental health awareness, and along with her husband, President Carter, she was the face of Habitat for Humanity. And despite politics, that fine lady made it a point to invite Melania Trump to join the other first ladies at her funeral to be held Wednesday in Plains, Georgia. So rest in power, First Lady Carter, and may your civility and grace be example to us all. And now for the main event. We're glad to have our old friend, the legendary newsman David Korn, back on the show. Corn is the DC bureau chief of Mother Jones and an on-air analyst for MSNBC. He's written four New York Times bestsellers, but his latest bestseller, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy, is an absolute must-read for anyone, for anyone interested in understanding why our republic is crumbling. Also, check out Our Land, his twice-weekly newsletter that covers everything from news of the day to entertainment, but all told in Korn's no-bullshit style. Today, we will discuss everything from the war in Gaza to the insanity of our politics here at home. So let's go now to that conversation. 
Okay, so it's great to have you back on the show, David. And I really do truly appreciate you taking the time during a holiday week, you know, to join me on Mea Culpa. So let's just jump right into it as always. A hostage release deal was announced Tuesday, and it's presumably underway. My, everything I've seen so far is that the deal has been made and it will ultimately start Thursday. Looking at the deal and how it's structured, you think it's fair to both sides? You think it's a good deal? I think it's a good deal in the sense that any deal that wasn't, in ter that wasn't terribly lopsided would be a good deal at this point in time. I don't think Netanyahu is a good faith actor. I don't think they have a I don't think Israel has a good strategy for how to deal with this war other than just blasting away at Hamas. They say they want to wipe out Hamas. I agree that's a noble goal. It's a genocidal terrorist organization that committed massacres. Whether you can do that, whether it's an achievable goal, is a without destroying all of Gaza and killing not just tens of thousands, but maybe a hundred thousand civilians. I don't know whether that's possible, whether anyone seriously believes you can do that. Does that mean you have to kill all the leaders of Hamas who are outside of Gaza and Gutter and other places? Uh, does it mean there's not a single Hamas militant left? Does it mean that the ideology itself and the resentments and anger and grievances that you've built up through this attack go away? So um, I don't think they really know what to do with Gaza, I don't know what it what it means, what the, what the end game is here. How do you know when you've wiped out Hamas? How do you measure that? And then what do you do afterwards? You just pull back out of Gaza again, and you think Hamas or something like it won't rise up again? So I think you know, uh, while they're right to protect themselves and react to this horrific, horrific, horrific massacre, it still breaks my heart to see the videos and hear people talk about it who witnessed that. I don't think they truly know in the big picture. What they're doing. So I think a pause now is uh, is good to get the hostages out and to maybe, you know, not be a total reset, but to think about how to go on from that. Because it seems, Michael, that this this deal could lead to the next deal, which would be more days of of, of, a, of a temporary ceasefire for more hostages coming out. And this all gives parties and other players in the region time to sort of think about, okay, what is the best way forward here? And you think, you know, in long terms, like what is, you know, when I say the end game, there are two end games, right? One end game is what do you do immediately about attacking Hamas and and, and, and removing that, 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 that threat? The other end game is what do you do about the Palestinian-Israel conflict? You have basically the same amount of millions of people in this very, very small area of land, right? They both think it's theirs and should be their homeland. And I'm not going to, you know, without even passing judgment on who's right or who's wrong on any of that, what do you do about this? You know, in the long run, can the, how can Israel survive if there are 7 million people in the West Bank and Gaza and the surrounding areas who believe that's their homeland and at least a good part of the world backs them up on that? And so, okay, so this war in Hamas, how do you prosecute, how do you how do you prosecute it? How do you do this in a way that serves the larger picture at the end of the day? How do you keep Israel safe as a as, as a state, as a, as a democracy? And so um, I think Netanyahu, you know, pushed by the right, um, hasn't really, has never really cared about these questions. He's not really for a two-state solution, although he gives lip service to it. And while this 
you know, war against Hamas has been going on, the far right in the West Bank has been pushing Palestinians out of their communities and, and killing a few of them and trying to use the moment to extend this far right agenda, which I think, you know, is, is extremist and is not good for Israel Israel's long-term prospects. So that's why I think, you know, we're not going to see for four or five days, hopefully, you know, these civilian casualties, these tragic stories uh, on the on, on the Gaza side of the equation. And maybe this will lead to, um, I don't want to say cooler heads prevailing, but will open the door to other ways going forward here. Yeah, look, I... I'm always confused when I have the conversation with people. You have such extremes, almost like we have here in America. The divisiveness that exists in this issue is so radical. On one hand, you see the folks who believe that Israel shouldn't exist. And on the other hand, you have those that want to see Gaza turned into a parking lot. Neither right. of those solutions is a permanent solution, as you just stated. So I've always asked people, what is a reasonable response to the attack by Hamas on Israel and these party goers? What is a reasonable response? And I can't think of one. And so far, most of the people that I've spoken to, again, either have their extreme positions. I want people to understand. And I say to some people, appreciate it. Some people, friends of mine who have blocked me off of social media, completely disagree with me. When I turn around and I say, Palestine is not Hamas. And Hamas is not Palestine. And that there are innocent civilians that are being used as shields by Hamas. And they're dying at record-breaking numbers. So, again, going back to my question, what's a reasonable response for what Hamas did? These These are incredibly difficult questions in the sense that, you know, hiding behind civilians is considered a war crime. Okay, now blasting civilians is considered a war crime too. So, you know, if you're Israel, do you justify a war crime by saying, well, they're committing war crimes? Well, then, you know, you're, 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 not, you're not any better than they are. You know, well, this is not the NFL, David, where you have negating penalties, right? I know, I, I, where you I, I, say, well, I, I, you exactly. did it so that we can do it, and then and, therefore it's all good. These and, are and, lies. And, 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 and our tax dollars go to, you know, Israel. You know, our moral, you know, uh, uh, involvement here is that we are finding, you know, we're not financing Hamas, although Israel financed Hamas to a certain degree, uh, to the, another issue. But we're not, you know, we're financing is, Israel. So what is our moral responsibility as taxpayers, as, as, as human beings for what happens there, you know, uh, with, with our tax dollars? You know, as a kid, I raised, I collected quarters for trees in, in Israel. I don't know if there's trees ever were planted, but, you know, I, 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 I feel, you know, a, a, a certain degree of kinship to what goes on there. And so um, I, it, it's very it's always been hard for a state, a government, a military to fight a non-state actor, terrorists, rebels, whatever you want to call them. 
you know, it's just much harder. Ter- to do terrorists, that. I think, is terrorists is, I think, the right yeah, way to describe Hamas. Hamas, yes, it is. But I just meant in general, a, a non-state group, whether, you know, you, they might be revolutionaries, you know, rebellions, you know, we might, you know, may, maybe fighting against the dictatorship versus a state and a military, right? Uh, it, it's, it's asymmetrical warfare. It is difficult. There is, you know, there are there are advocates out there for a, a for, that say there should have been a smaller, more targeted strike, and uh, that would, you know, against you know Hamas targets with fewer civilian casualties. You know, you know, one thing that I don't accept is that you know the, the argument like we have to do this, otherwise we'll be attacked again, and this is we have to blast Gaza the way we're blasting it. No, I mean now that you see how Gaza how how Hamas operated over, you know, and came through the border, you can certainly prevent that from happening again, the way that we can prevent another 9-11. Something else might happen, but once, you know, they do something like that, they can't really do it again because you can fortify through TSA and all that other stuff. So uh, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of life and death in the sense that another attack would have happened had they not gone in this way. So I think there was time to, Strike specifically, you know, Hamas-related targets. Uh, more, even more, more pinpoint. They claim it's pinpoint, but when you're killed, when you're killing anywhere from five to ten thousand civilians, I don't consider that pinpoint. And it's really hard. I mean, think about how we felt after 9/11. Rage and grief are powerful motivations. And and you know, I, you know, having written a book about this hubris with Michael Isikoff, I've thought long and hard about what. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney did after 9-11, particularly about going into um, Iraq. And I think at the end of the day, Bush felt like he just needed to do something, that going after Afghanistan was not enough. You know, he just wanted to have a show of force, show that he was a sheriff in town. And anyone who might even be thinking about this, I'm just going to blast the hell out of them, which he, he did with the invasion, without thinking about where that would lead to. And of course, the, you know, in, in terms of Iraq, it destabilized the region and led to 200,000 dead Iraqi civilians and three to 4,000 dead American service men and women. Um, and I think that's kind of what's happened in, um, in Israel. And I think it's very hard to say, OK, let's figure out how to be smart about this and what we can do politically, diplomatically and military and have an integrated policy. And I think that doesn't feed it doesn't answer, you know, the demand that people have for a tremendously wrathful response. And so and certainly Netanyahu is not the person who, who I would have picked to come up with a more sophisticated, nuanced and perhaps more effective response. Um, so I do, I do think there were, you know, there, there are choices because there always are choices. But I understand why in this with this circumstances, it's unrealistic to, to to expect that. So I so but so now what I'm hoping is is we talked about a moment ago is that okay after all this you know brutality of of, of these initial you know six weeks or so now or longer of, of attacks that if there is a pause um, with this hostage deal that maybe turns into a longer pause with with more deals that a a, a better strategy other than you know this sort of Total close annihilation, to yeah, annihilation. And I, you know, and and going back to your to the larger point you raised, this is what we see when there's a clash of fundamentalists. 
You have Netanyahu being driven by right-wing fundamentalists in Israel to not negotiate, not care about, you know, creating a two-state solution or, or even dealing with this issue. The far right of Israel wants to push Palestinians out of both Gaza and the West Bank. They believe this is their land. How do they know that? Says so in the Bible. Says so in the Bible. That's really what it boils down to. And they want to push everybody out. They don't want a deal. The only reason that that, that Netanyahu can stay in, in, in power is because he has the support of, of these people. And on the other side, you have Hamas openly saying, we want to destroy Israel. We don't want a deal. We don't want to deal with Israel. We want to, we want to annihilate it. You know, when they say from the river to the sea, they mean literally no Israelis, uh, no Jews in that area. And so you have these two fundamentalist forces. And unless, you know, their grip on both sides can be broken. And I don't want, I don't want to say there's a moral equivalency here. I don't want people to think that, I'm, that, that Hamas is the same as the Netanyahu government, although um, I do think they both are driven by religious fundamentalism of, of different sorts. Uh, you need to break that grip on this. And what we saw um, during the Trump years was that the Trump administration, basically, your, your old pal Jared and Donald, they believed they didn't need to worry about the Palestinians, that they could cut what they called the Abraham Accords, government to government, Israel negotiating with the United Arab Emirates and other Gulf region uh, countries to have dip- diplomatic recognition, business ties, cultural exchanges, we'll send you an orchestra, you'll send us a dance troupe, and maybe a little more tourism between them. And that's all fine and well. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But if you read these agreements, and if you go back and look at the signing ceremonies, which I did recently, there's not a single mention of the Palestinians. They just said, we're not going to bother with that. And the Palestinians actually protested and held these very outraged demonstrations against these accords. Because like, what about us? You know, the Arab states always say that, you know, that that was the most important issue in the region. I mean, I think they used it as a cudgel against Israel more than anything else. I don't think they care that much about the Palestinians. But anyway, the 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 premise was we don't have to worry about the Palestinian conflict uh, with Israel and, 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 and the conditions that the Palestinians are living in and getting back on track to a two state solution or something else. And, you know, we can let this fester. Right. And we see what happens where this festering has led us. Um, and Hamas's, you know, stated, you know, what they say explicitly is they, you know, they they mounted this horrific, barbarous um, massacre to remind people, hey, we're still here and to show that we still have impact. And we can yeah, it may not have been may not have been the right move within which you know to punch yeah. somebody or you know or no, 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 <laughs> attack I, I, somebody you know, who is clearly stronger you know militarily than you are. But let me ask you this, David, just because this popped in. You know, Joe Biden does not get credit for anything. I mean, it's yeah, really yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. You take a look at his poll numbers. Whatever it is that he's accomplished is negated by the fact yeah. that he's old. And that's all that you hear from people. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I get it. Okay. So drug prices are down. So unemployment is down. So, you know, oil prices are down. So Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Right. But he's old. I get that. (laughs) Right. You know, by the way, 
What's the alternative, right? To be staring up at the bottom of the grass? Well, this is what, hold on, wait a second, interrupt you for one second. He's old. Donald Trump is no spring chicken. And yeah, he's two and a half years younger, which is hysterical. And this is what I would say. Okay, this is what, if you're worried about him being old, let's do this. Let's take Donald Trump and let's take Joe Biden and put a bicycle in front of each one of them and say, okay, guys, let's see you ride. Yeah. We should do I a triathlon we between, uh, like a triathlon between the two, right? Not but let me ask you this. Because I, let's just, <laughs> let's just go down the street. Let's just see you get on a bicycle and ride. Exactly. So let me ask you this, because how, how has the Biden administration helped to negotiate the current release and ceasefire? And do you think that the administration or Joe Biden will get any credit whether nationally or internationally from this. It's it. The way I, you know, I, I've, and I've written about this a bunch in my newsletter, Our Land, people can sign up at davidcorn.com over the last few weeks, looking at what Biden is doing. And it was clear his strategy was in public, in public to embrace Netanyahu, say I'm fully supportive of Israel. I love Israel. I've always been there for Israel. Well, in private, he and Tony Blinken and, and other members of his administration trying to push Netanyahu to be more restrained, to, to kill, based bottom line, to kill less Palestinian civilians. And to uh, and, and it wasn't clear to me that that was working, that, you know, that, 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 that the cost of him identifying with Netanyahu, who is a bad faith actor, who the world kind of despises, who is incredibly unpopular in, in, in Israel. And, you know, I think the only place he's ever been popular in the last few years has been in front of the U.S. Congress. But that's another another issue. But so that he thought that by being supportive publicly, he could have influence um, privately and, and actually make things, if not better, less worse than they were. Um, and we see with the deal now, the as, as you and I are talking, the accounts are just coming out that Biden was essential, you know, with talking to um, Qatar and, and with Netanyahu and lots of sort of shuttle diplomacy, even though it might have been by phone calls, not by airplanes, and getting this deal worked out. And so it shows, you know, that his theory of the case was to some degree correct. You know, we're not the same over. And, you know, if they go back to the same sort of fighting that they, we had, um, you know, before the deal, it's it's not going to help Biden at all, but because right now I think that you know the, the horrific the horrific images that have come out of the you know out, out of the Palestinian side with the attack on, on Gaza, the bombing and and, and the ground assault I, I have I think taken a bite out of Biden's um, image for younger Democrats in the United States, progressive Democrats. Maybe within the black community, there's always been a certain degree of affinity or, or support in the black community for uh, Palestinian rights. Uh, and, you know, whether this counters that at all, I think we can't say yet until we see where things finally settle. This deal is not is not a, a, a final settling of, of the war here. And, you know, and I do think, you know, the, you know, the massacre you know, that Hamas mounted you know, for a brief shining moment, had drew a lot of sympathy for for Israel as it should have. It was horrific. It was terrible. 
you know, the, you know, I, you know, I have young daughters, and when I think about, you know, the the music festival in particular, it's, it's it, you know, it, 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 it brings tears to my eyes. Um, but then, you know, we've seen since then, you know, before that even could be fully absorbed, you know, six seven weeks now of these stories of of, of family, all families and journalists and and healthcare workers and babies being bombed, and I I just don't know how how people watch that. And not feel, um, you know, sickened and upset by that as well. No matter, you know, and that's you know, I, I. I was watching. This is what I wrote about most recently in the newsletter. I was watching the march for Israel that, that was held in the National Mall, D.C. on, on this past uh, Tuesday, and you know, a lot of speakers got out there and they, they denounced the, the massacre. That was great. They denounced the rise in anti-Semitism. That's fine. Didn't say much about the rise of Islamophobia. I wish they had mentioned that as well. Um, but there were a couple of moments, like at one point, CNN commentator Van Jones said he wanted to see both the rockets f- uh, falling on Israel and the bombs falling on Gaza stop. And the crowd started chanting, no ceasefire, no ceasefire. So they, no, we don't want to see it stopped. And I, you have people like Tom Cotton, who basically said, I want to see. Uh, they can turn Gaza into rubble for all, all I care about, right? And, and and even if you believe strategically, tactically, uh, ceasefires won't be helpful at this point in time to sort of not have some degree of compassion and concern or be moved by what's happening to Palestinians who half of, Palestine, of Gaza are under the age of 18. When Hamas was elected in 2005, they were not born. I mean, they're not, you know, they they were born into a somewhat tyrannical system where Hamas rules and kills democracy and, you know, and they're being killed. Um, so, uh, and I think that Biden, while he's talked about having some Palestinian, you know, making sure there's less harm being done to the Palestinians, he, he had, you know, a few days ago when he was asked about a ceasefire, he said, no ceasefire, absolutely not. I think lines like that can be modified like, well, I hope we can get to something like that. What's happening with these loss of life and the destruction is indeed awful, and we're working towards ending the violence. Um, so I, so I, I don't know. We'll see. You know, he'll get a, a dollop of, of of credit in the next day or two, but in terms of how much credit he gets over the, you know, bef- between now and the next election, still has a lot to depend on where this war goes. So can I just jump in in that because it was an excellent article in your um, Our Land newsletter, right? And just for my listeners, it happened to be entitled The Tragic Indifference of a No Ceasefire. And in it, you talk how lots of folks support Israel, but not the people of Gaza, who are also under attack. They're under it. The people of Gaza, the Palestinians, are under attack by Hamas. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can assure you that there are Palestinians in Gaza that don't want to have rockets hanging out of their kitchen windows or they don't want tunnels, um, you know, or they don't want their their sons or or daughters or whoever to be um, taken by Hamas and used as either shields or weapons. My question to you is, what do you attribute that indifference to? Because they're the ones that are being stifled by Hamas. Yeah, I think 
one one of the I think this is just uh, an issue of human nature and the history of human development. One of the most powerful forces in human society is indeed tribalism and that people care more about their tribe than the other tribe. And they, it's very easy to dehumanize um, foes or people who are not of, of your ilk. And we see that here in, you know, there's been some discussion of that in the last week. I think it should have been going on much longer with um, people reacting to Donald Trump referring to people like you and I who oppose him or criticize him or people who are liberal-minded as vermin who are destroying the country from within. Now, you know, he, that got a lot of attention, but he's been saying this um, for years now. He's always talked about how you know radical black activists and communists like me and others you know, who are left of center are working together to destroy the country. And now he just happens to be aping the language of Hitler and Mussolini more closely by saying people like this are are, are animals and, and, and vermin. Uh, and I think, you know, I mean, that if you, what we see um, in Israel, what we see here is that people just look at these other human beings as not quite the same as them and their human beings. It's a different team and you know, and you know, Hamas does you know does the same. You know, you you know, it's, it's painful to me that there. You know, you, you, we have these videos that Israel shows of Hamas terrorists calling back to their parents and saying, "Mom, Dad, I'm killing Jews," and like, "Oh, great son, keep going." You know, we we always knew you'd turn out to be do something good, and um, it's like okay, they they they're burning children and older elderly people they're you know they're they're shooting you know unarmed uh, young adults who are pleading for their lives um you only can do this i mean i think if you if you're able to dehumanize these people if you're able to see them as animals as something different you know you know you know and you know the history of anti-semitism is that jews are dirty and they're different you know right and like then you know um in america there was the somewhat of a debate in the 1800s where the Jews could, should be considered white people or not, right? So, and you know, of course, we do the same thing in Western society with Arabs, with you know, and Muslims, and there's all sorts of evil and terrible rhetoric about what people say about Muslims and um, and, and, and 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 Arabs. Uh, so, it's I think it just goes to this fundamental. So when I'm when I'm watching this rally, and I think people are right to demand the release of the hostages, you know, bring attention to anti-Semitism and denounce, you know, the Hamas attacks, the main three th- points of the rally, I'm kind of heartbroken that these people who who are showing so much care and love for their own loved ones do not seem to be able to have any empathy for Palestinians, civilians, who are experiencing the same type of loss that they are. They're suffering in this, you know, not exactly in the same way, but they're suffering as well to a, to a, in an immense, to an immense degree. And, you know, and, and until we can kind of, you know, get beyond that and, you know, you know, I, I wish that if, um, if an American politician gets up there and says, these other Americans I agree with, 
they're rats. They need to be exterminated. They're vermin. They're scum. Why? Because they disagree with you about tax policy? They By disagree. the way, do we not see that every single day going on in Congress now? And not just between Republicans and Democrats. You have the far right wing of the Republican Party with yeah. the more centrist wing of the Republic Party wanting to fight one another, elbowing each other's in the kidneys. Um, yeah. I mean, they're, I they're all out of their fucking minds, to be I, honest I with I you. I don't understand why that's not a disqualification. It's like, okay, you know, and, and I, you know, they're, you know, in, in the book I wrote, American Psychosis, I keep, I keep coming back to this, to this um, one anecdote I tell in the book. It goes back to 1980 when Jimmy Carter, who was then president, was running against Ronald Reagan, who uh, was, uh, had, had been governor of California, but had no office at the time. And, 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 and Ronald Reagan was getting support from lots of far-right extremists, people who were calling for the execution of homosexuals, People were saying that uh, liberal Democrats are anti-Christian, anti-God. They even were taking out ads saying that Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter was a bad Christian. Sunday school teaching Jimmy Carter was a bad Christian. Probably the most religious president we've had in, you know, maybe since I, uh, in the modern time period. Wait, um, you, wait, wait. You think he's more religious than Donald? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so, and so, at one point, there was a debate between Reagan and Carter, and Carter mentioned that Reagan, you know, was involved with extremists, and he did it in a very kind of polite way. He, you know, Reagan had opened his general election campaign by going rally in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers had been killed, and he talked about states' rights, which was a code word for white supremacists. And so you, you mentioned like, you know, your, your campaign seems to be uh, uh, drawn or interacting with extremists. And what did the press do? For a week, they pounded Jimmy Carter for being mean, for being mean. Yeah. Could you, you know? imagine Jimmy Carter right now today against Donald Trump I mean, in an election? Like, I mean, nobody was, has seen the meanness that, you know, Donald, that Donald Trump yeah you know, has managed to display and, and to the thing, change the, the body thing, politic, right, of campaigning know, forever. Yeah. And I don't know if you if you, if you get all the emails that, that I get because I sign up for Republican mailing lists and, and conservative mailing lists to see. And like, so Trump says this sort of stuff once in a while, vermin, everyone out there. You know, I get several times a day a fundraising email Kevin McCarthy from the National Republican Senate Committee, maybe from Chuck Norris raising money for some conservative group, Kelly and Conway. And they all say the same thing. They may not use a vermin word, but it's like this country is being overrun, which is another word by itself, by uh, by by communist radicals that want to destroy it. They want to destroy the suburbs, meaning white suburbs. They're in league with um, or, uh, with Black Lives Matters. And other radicals, you know, black radicals are coming to your town. And we need to make sure that this threat is exterminated, you know, extinguished. Oh, yeah, they all, use, they all oh, use the same language. It's all, same it's all part of the Donald language. Yeah, and so what I'm saying, and, you know, and so it's not just Trump saying this at a rally. The people that he's speaking to and others are getting this 
message reaffirmed day after day after day after day. And it's, I think, incredibly injurious to the body politic here. And it is it increases polarization, tribalization. And it is. It's it's just about dehumanizing the other side, in which case they mean anyone who's not part of the Trump personality cult. But that would be moderate Republicans. It would be progressive Democrats, centrist Democrats. It'd be the entire anyone works for the media. And it's um, you know, we see, you know, you know, back to your original question here, uh, Michael, we, we see how what this has led to. In Israel, uh, with this, you know, polarization and tremendous antipathy that leads to this awful, awful violence. But re- David, but remember something. Remember something for a second. A lot of this has to do with money, right? And of yeah. course, I want. I just want to use as an example. There's nobody right now that Donald is meaner to than Ron DeSantis. Yeah, and. When I think of Ron DeSantis, I think of another article that I believe you authored, who owns Ron DeSantis. And in that article, because this all joins together, you claim, and you're 100% accurate because it's filed, he raised a shit ton amount of contributions from plutocrats, sketchy donors, special interest PACs, and corporations that all do business with Florida. So my question to you is, Ron DeSantis, or as Donna like to say, Ron DeSantis, all right, <laughs> has absolutely no chance. So why are these billionaires? Why are these plutocrats? Why are they investing in DeSantis? Is the goal yeah. Yeah. to try to destabilize democracy? Well, the well, these what we did was, you know, DeSantis has had trouble raising enough money to <laughs> be less have a less embarrassing campaign um, as president. But what we did was something a little bit different. We looked at the money he raised for his re-election campaign in 22, so two years ago. And in Florida, they don't have the same restraints that the federal election system has. You know, you can give uh, $3,600 or so to a presidential candidate you can give unlimited amounts to a to a special a super PAC that's supposed to be somewhat separate, although then they're not that separate anymore. But in Florida, you can give as much as you want to the political action committee of a candidate that is controlled by the candidate himself. And so in Florida, when he ran in twenty twenty two, Ron DeSantis raised two hundred and eleven million dollars. That's one fifth of a billion dollars. He set a record. Nobody has ever raised this much for a gubernatorial campaign, or I think a Senate campaign, and no presidential candidate has ever brought that much in directly, as opposed to money to a PAC and to a to a political party. And he did it. You know, we went through it. You know, he had tens of thousands of donors, but he had 313 donors that gave 100,000 or more. Several gave several million. Can you imagine a system where you're not just giving a couple thousand bucks to um, a candidate or 10,000 bucks to a PAC, but writing a check for six figures or seven figures that goes directly to the campaign of the, of the candidate? Well, that's what happened here. 
And, you know, and I did this story with my colleagues, Nina Wang and Russ uh, Choma. And, and, and we went through, we combined we, through all 313. We went through each one of them and we looked at who and what they were because they have individuals, they're p- political action committees and they're corporations. You know, a business can't give money to a federal candidate, but in Florida, a business can. So you had a bunch of businesses giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to Florida who get state contracts. You have many more who gave less money too. This is not, you know, this is just the top of the, of, of, of the pile here. You had eccentric billionaires, people who funded the election denialists and the rally on January 6th, giving millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions to Trump. You had a bunch of people, including one guy who had been back in the, I think it was the eighties or nineties, according to, uh, law enforcement associated with the mafia. Now he's a restaurant tycoon who, who gave um, hundreds of thousands of dollars to um, DeSantis. And it just showed that, you know, he just, you know, nobody has ever brought in that amount of money. And here's the thing. He's using that money for his presidential campaign. Now, how, you may ask, do you take state money under lax state rules and use it in a federal election, which has tighter rules? Well, what his campaign did was his campaign turned into a different organization, and it was left with $82 million at the end of the 211 he spent, he, million he raised. He had $82 million left. He couldn't even spend all the money he raised. And they took that money and put it into his super PAC. And there have been lawsuits challenging this with the FEC, but the FEC, that's the Federal Election Commission. Uh, is now basically null and void. It has three Republican commissioners and three Democratic commissioners, and the Republicans are all pro-Trumpy, far-right commissioners, and they won't approve any investigations. So even though this is, seems to be patently illegal, they're not investigating this. So, so you know, I guess the you know the you know, the good news is in a way that even though he cheated and took all this gigantic sums of money from plutocrats and sketchy and shady um, donors, uh, it hasn't helped, at least not yet. But yeah, well, I still it think hasn't helped at all. Yeah, it doesn't. You know, I, uh, I, I very much doubt he's going to have a renaissance uh, and, you know, in, in the 2024 election. But we will say this. He's still governor of a very important state. Um, and he may continue being governor, and his, you know, this may not be his last effort, you know, to run for president. He's young, you know. Look at Joe Biden; he ran in '88. How long did it take him to, to reach there? So the fact that you know DeSantis has been propped up, and he owes all this, you know, political debt to this gang of of plutocrats, billionaires, and others, is still important. You know, um, he's still going to be on the scene and it just shows you um, how crooked the system can be, particularly when we eviscerate places like the FEC and don't even bother. Well, the FEC, by the way, David, never had any power. They, you know, they basically just put out they can fine you, but there was no power with the FEC, no matter what I was. I had a couple of uh, folks. you know, send in FEC complaints and stuff. They were all ultimately dismissed. But I don't even want to waste my time with the FEC. I do want to ask you, though, 
Can you do me a favor? Can you tell us more about Project 2025? Because I know that you talk a lot about that yeah. or how right-wing well, groups are plotting. Yeah. I'm very to curious. Im- yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, I'm very project, uh, curious what you think too because Project 2025, in a way, is a response to uh, Donald Trump's uh, lack of discipline, focus, and inability to do what he says he's going to do, right? So he got elected president in 2016. He had all these plans to give us the best health care ever, to give us infrastructure, and to take away power from the war, you know, take away power from the bureaucrats and, and you know, remake the U.S. government. And of course, he did none of that because he doesn't really know how to. I don't think he knows how to stay focused on anything that's not himself directly. He can't get into details. He can't, you know, he really can run the government. And um, so a lot of this stuff didn't happen. And, you know, people on the right were disappointed. And, you know, Trump blames and others blame the the bureaucrats and the civil servants, you know, people who are in the civil service who were there who defied him, even though, like, you write a stupid Muslim ban that, you know, couldn't pass legal muster. So, of course, it was overturned. And also it was because I think, you know, he surrounded himself with, you know, with basically a B team, people who didn't have a lot of experience in, in, in government, legislature, policy, and they didn't do this right. So what's happened now is he's running again. He wants to be back in office. If he won and got back in, one would expect him to sign and do, you know, behave and conduct himself in the same manner. but. We have a group of a dozen or so conservative far-right organizations. The Heritage Foundation might be the most famous of them. Um, They have put together a game plan about how they can take control of the government fully. They, you know, they are. You know, right now, if you work for the government, you don't you don't get fired every time the administration changes. That would be chaotic. You know, people running the TSA, and you just fire everybody there. Then you bring new people in and you think the TSA is going to work well, right? Pick your agency. You know, you have most of the civil service, their jobs are not determined by politics. You have 3,000 to 4,000 political appointees who work in the agencies who are basically screened by the White House. And so what they want to do is they want to come in and they want to make sure all those 4,000 employees are true Trump loyalists, which didn't happen the first time. Some were just Republicans who had given money or had some connection. And they want to create an infrastructure so they can make sure all those 4,000 people are total Trump loyalists. And then they want to go beyond that. And they want to change the law so that people who work beneath them, you know, the hundreds of thousands of, of federal workers, can be fired basically at will. If you, they, if, if, if you don't support Donald Trump... If you they find out, oh, they gave money to Black Lives Matter, or they gave money to Peace Now in Israel, or you know they we asked them to do this one thing that would promote Donald Trump, and they said that's not my job. They can all be fired. So they're talking about tens to ten to fifty thousand federal employees replacing them with Trump loyalists, and at the same time, they're talking about taking the Justice Department 
But, you know, since Watergate, there's been a move to try to keep the Justice Department out of the control of the White House. They, you know, they may make mistakes. May, I know you have your beef with them, may do things right or wrong, but it's like, you know, no, 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 look, I know, no, no, I don't want to trigger you. I don't want to trigger you here. But let me finish my point. Uh, but the idea is to give them some independence from the White House. The White House can't use them against political enemies. Um, and and they want to take away those safeguards so that Donald Trump can order the Justice Department to run criminal investigations against you, against me, against Mark Milley, uh, against John Kelly, against Bill Bill Barr, anybody they want. So so basically this Project 2025 is a way to say, how can we take Donald Trump's authoritarian impulses that he expresses rather fully but doesn't have the discipline to implement how can we do that institutionally? So that's the question. And so, and they're doing it. They're very active. They have money. They put out a thousand page book on how to do this. And it's, you know, so they basically want to say that this time it's for real. It's not just Donald Trump banging the desk. This time we're going to have thousands and thousands of Trump foot soldiers policing the government and making sure that his plans to deport 10 million people, to set up refugee camps, you know, his ideas about suppressing voter registration, whatever they may be, about banning immigrants, um, whatever he's talking about, about using the Justice Department to go after you, Michael, and others, that that can happen. So that's why... So then let me... Yeah, so let me ask you, because when I listen to you speaking about this, it's so on point with The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, it's really (laughs) Gilead. So I want to ask you this then. To what degree do you think that average voters are on board with Trump's dystopian plans for the country? I mean, do people who don't pay attention to the news even understand what's at stake here? Because the way you describe it, the way I describe it, it is emphatically emphatically the end of democracy as we know it. Donald will insert himself through the help of, whether it's the Heritage Foundation or any of these right-wing groups you were just talking about, he will insert himself as the king. Yes, that, I mean, I, I think it's always clear that he wants, you know, when you hear him talk, he praises, you know, Putin. He praises Xi of China. He praises the North Korean dictator. He praises Orban and, and Erdogan, the, the strong men of, um, of, of Hungary and Turkey and, uh, and Duarte of, of, of the Philippines. And, he, and he's always dumping on our Western allies. He's, you know, he's always, you know, you know, they don't do enough here. They don't do enough there. Um, they're not effective. You know, he doesn't like them. And so he certainly wants to emulate, he idealizes authoritarians, and some of them are dict- are just outright dictators. And so that's what he wants. When he talks about vermin, it's, you know, he's, he's adopting the language of fascists and fascism. Um, and I don't think that's gotten enough attention. You know, I don't think, I think the media generally pays more attention to the 
horse race or to or they cover this more as outrageous statements in the last couple of days literally you know there was a story um on the new york times yesterday that talked about how he was you know resorting to language that has been used by fascists i thought that was a tremendous you know change for the new york times to 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 say it outright uh, on a front page story but um and you see the post washington post new york times and a few places you know they do little bursts of well trump may be a threat to democracy but it doesn't happen enough and what i realized i was just talking to a neighbor this morning about um about news about trump and he's not a a consumer a regular consumer of news but he knows i'm in the business and i just, and i thought listening to him i understand because he asked me about the colorado case in which it was a judge ruled that trump could not be taken off the primary ballot because of his role in fomenting an insurrectionist riot and but when i mentioned the vermin remark and other things that trump has done lately the guy didn't know anything about that i realized people who don't follow the news the way you and i do they get snatches they get snatches they see a headline they may hear a story when they're flipping the radio in their car or when they're flipping their channel they may see a little scroll on something and and it may catch their attention but they don't necessarily get the storyline right they it's like watching a movie you see a scene then you see a scene 20 minutes later and a scene 20 minutes later and the scenes may line up and give you a theme or they may not they may be totally unconnected and that's how i think a lot of people consume news so the if there's something so drastic going on as a guy running for president who is talking about new according to the new york times using fascistic language and thus is posing a threat to democracy well then you got to cover it in a very sustained way again and again and again you got to keep coming back to that you got to make it a prominent theme and if you do that the times does that and the washington post does that then maybe network news does that and of course msnbc is already there but maybe other cable cnn does at locals and it you know if it it, it 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 filters out more it seeps out more and so i know my friends at the new york times will say well we covered the vermin remark and we just had the piece but if they don't do anything for three more weeks on this because other news comes up then it doesn't register yeah the, the one and done does the one and done does not register it's an amazing it's an absolutely accurate statement david one and done does not and they just let it go that's the crazy thing about the right they have this ability that right wing uh eco chamber you know that some people are calling earth two where it's just simply as you know kellyanne conway would say it's alternative facts but on Earth One, we, we who are here on Earth, we prefer our journalism and our journalists to be fact-checked, right? I mean, you think that we're ever going to get back to like one central reality where a fact is a fact and bullshit is bullshit, innuendo is innuendo, misinformation is no longer out there? No, but let me, but let me, but let me address one thing that you said, because when you talk about... Um, you know, the right wing echo chamber, um, you know, what they do. One thing they're exceedingly, exceedingly good at, 
And I think Roger Ailes and before him, Rush Limbaugh really kind of mastered all this and got them thinking these terms um, is creating not just alternative facts, but alternative storylines, right? They come up with narratives again and again, whether it be about crime, you know, being, you know, it's, it's, you know, it has gotten bad in some places and some places and certain crime is up and certain crime is not, but it's like, we're just going to talk about crime, right? And we're going to talk about the migrants causing crime. I mean, you know, we're going to talk about Biden's age again and again and again. We're going to do the Hillary Clinton emails. We're going to do Benghazi. They come up with storylines and they then reinforce again and again and again. And or the Hunter Biden stuff, right? And they all say, you know, Hunter Biden, Biden strikes me as somewhat of a sleazy guy who did what a lot of people try to do, try to make money off a famous name. But, you know, we're just going to keep hammering on that so that eventually people are going to think, well, maybe Joe Biden is involved. Um, and and that's, you know, and like every day at Fox, the talking points come down. Here's what we want. Here are the storylines we want to promote today. And that's a political operation and a for profit. They think this is what's going to keep the audience and make the money. You know, having worked for, you know, oh, I think over 10 years now at MSNBC, you know, that never happens. There's no central committee at MSNBC that says, this is what you're going to talk about, and we want to promote this line. Often it's pretty obvious what the story of the day is, but um, the right is very good at creating stories with, you know, what does a story need? It needs a good guy and a bad guy, and it needs drama and conflict. That's what all drama is about, right? So. Um, they do that very well, and, I, and it's been very effective. And I think what it does is, you know, right now, you know, if you go down the issues, be it gun control, tax policy, health care, all these things, the American public tends to be more on the side left of center than right of center, uh, issue by issue. If you ask them if you're a conservative or a liberal, they actually tend to be, say they're more conservative than liberal. And so in order to sort of not win on the policy ideas front, they need to create these super meta narratives so that people identify with Republicans um, for whatever reason they, they have to give them. And that's how they keep, how they stay in the fight. If they couldn't do this, if they just said, okay, let's just talk today about gun safety. Who wants unlimited guns? Who wants some degree of, of gun you know, uh, regulation? They would lose. You know, not in every congressional district, of course, but nationally they would lose big time. So they keep coming up with these stories. Just you know, why do you know? I you know, I wrote a book called "The Lies of George W. Bush," and why do people lie? Lying gives someone an advantage. You lie, disinformation gives you an advantage. Misinformation gives you an advantage. If you and if you've decided that's the only way you can stay in power, and staying in power is your priority. Then you lie. I mean, I see, you know, and I think, and I think what Trump did, which was in some ways, I don't think it was purposeful. I think it's his nature. But when you lie so, 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 so much, it devalues each lie. I mean, there was up a until the point, up until the point that your ass is sitting on the witness stand, or individuals 
are sitting in the witness stand trying to continue yep. with your narrative. And at That's that point in time, there is no there is no ability to lie. See, yeah, you can lie to the general public. Donald does it every single day on his untruth social. Look what's happening along with the other Trump companies that have gone under. Um, he's now going to end up losing that too. But they continue with the lie. And worse than people like Donald, right? Because he's just fucking bad no matter how you describe him it's the followers of donald like a mike johnson right that you know wants no separation between church and state that's a fundamental principle of american democracy it's a fundamental principle that he wants to create some religious litmus test for politicians and so on. look the hour goes by very quickly, David. I do have this one last question to ask you because you take all of this, what we're talking about, the religious litmus test, the dystopian world that Donald is creating. You have the um, scenario where you're going to have the Heritage Foundation and others, uh, the Project 2025. I mean, this stuff is really, really, really problematic for the future of democracy. So now as we lead up to this 2024 election, because your ear is to the ground, what should Democrats be doing to ensure that we win elections and hold on to democracy? How do we take back the House? How do we keep the, the Senate? And how do we end up keeping Joe Biden in the White House? What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the plan here? Well, you know, if I really knew how to do that, I'd be making millions of dollars here. Um, I mean, the, 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 the glib answer is literally everything. But, what you know, they need to be mobile. You know, right now, Joe Biden's approval ratings are really, really low. And they should be a cause of concern. Um, and people are saying the economy sucks even though economic indicators are not that bad. And interestingly enough, there's a story in the New York Times this morning, people are buying and they're going on vacations and they're acting as if they don't think the economy is bad. When people think the economy is bad, you see spending go down, you see all these other economic activities. But they, you know, and this is kind of mystifying because people are behaving as they have historically when they thought the economy was good. So this is, again, sort of this dissonance, this, 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 this gap here between what people feel and even how they're acting and behaving in their own lives. Um, and I think, you know, you talked about this earlier. I think a lot of it goes back to, you know, Biden, Biden's age. And, you know, there's not much anyone can do about that. I think any other Democrat, not any other Democrat, I do think, you know, Gretchen Whit Whitmer and, and, and Gavin Newsom probably could beat Donald Trump pretty easily. Um, but uh, if Joe Biden dropped out, but I'm assuming that's not going to happen. And thus, the, the Democrats need to pay a lot of attention to the people who seem to be dropping out of the Biden coalition. It's younger people. It's like you know, Latinos. There's a little bit of uh, of disintegration or, or 
drop off in in the black community for Biden. And I think they need to get a lot of, uh, I think Biden needs to be talking to those people, but I think they need to get a lot of um, surrogates out there early to do this. I think they do need, you know, and I know they're, they're starting to do this. They were, they were going to wait. You know, Biden's line is don't judge me against the almighty, judge me against the other guy, meaning Donald Trump. And they were thinking there was time to set up the contrast between him and, you know, you know, Donald Trump wants to do, this is always true with incumbents. You want to make the election a choice election. Do you want the incumbent or not want the incumbent? If you don't want the incumbent, then you vote for me. And what, and what Biden wants to do is what incumbents always want to do. We want to make this a comparison between me and the guy running against me. You know, you may not like everything I'm doing, but do you like me better than this other guy? And they were going to get to that later on in the campaign. I think, in a, and I think they've come to the realization they need to do that sooner, particularly the more and more that Trump goes off the rails in opposing democracy. And I will say this, so you and I care about that. And I know most people do, if you would get them to think about it. It's not a kitchen table issue. It's not right in front of them. It's an abstract issue. Um, it's about what might happen down the road in an, in an abstract fashion is how it's presented now. So I think it's a heavier lift to make that a key issue in the campaign. Thus, going back to what I said earlier, whether it's through the media or through Democrats, having a sustained uh, attack on that, making it a sustained narrative, that needs to happen yesterday, just as soon as possible. You can talk about health care, drug prices, um, and everything else, but this has to become an essential part of it. And, you know, Biden's given a couple of speeches. They're good speeches. But like you said, it's they feel like one and done. They need to find a way to make this happen every day. Every day, Biden, every day, you know, you know, the Republicans and Trump are attacking Biden for being old and out of it. I mean, fuck, the Rolling Stones are on tour next year and they're 80. If they can you know, get out there and play, you know, Biden can probably still be president, but uh, do a good job. Well, let me just, let me just, finish. just to wrap it up. So, you know, the camp, they need to, you know, talk, find a way to talk even more consistently about what Biden's doing that people like. I mean, because just look at Trump, you know, Trump, every day he's out there saying, I am great. The economy was great under me. I do great things. And like, I, I think most people would feel self-conscious or even ashamed to do that. But he does it every fucking single day. Biden doesn't have to do it every day. He needs to do it more. He needs to address the weaknesses of his coalition. And he has to make Trump's authoritarianism a uh, central part. And then if you do all that, if you do all that, the odds are 50-50. Huh, great. David, thank you so much, my brother. Good to see you. Stay yeah. safe. And um, definitely need to have you back because this conversation is not ending today. That's, for, that's certainly for sure. My friend, I will see you soon. And now for today's mea culpa. I have been known to say that Trump won't actually end up running for president in 2024. I mean, it seemed like there were too many factors against him to make an actual run even possible. But now here we are, and the mango Mussolini is out selling a shit ton of red hats and fascism at all of his rallies. 
because he's running for president. He hasn't bothered to debate the other Republicans running. But according to Sportsbook, he's the betting favorite to win the GOP nomination. So why bother to debate? But under the 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, Trump is disqualified from running for any political office. So let me be more specific. Section 3 of the amendment states that if you've taken an oath to the Constitution and then turned around to lead an insurrection against the Constitution, you can't be president. I mean, my friends, it's that simple. If you swear allegiance to the flag and then light the flag on fire, you don't get a new flag. Now, several states, Colorado and Minnesota, have tried to take it upon themselves to kick Trump off the ballot based on the 14th Amendment. And those attempts have all failed. But all is not lost. I mean, far from it, because this issue will eventually end up before the Supreme Court, at which point Trump's chances for another term are most likely toast. You may recall the conservative judge Ludig from the January 6th hearings. He was the guy that Pence went to for advice when Trump was pressuring him to steal the election. Ludig is why, despite the mob attacking the Capitol and trying to hang him, Pence held the line and certified Biden's win. Judge Ludig recently said, and I quote, The effort to change the outcome of the 2020 election is not politics. These were grave crimes against the United States of America, almost as grave as would have been treason. Yes, you heard that right. A conservative judge is actively trying to get the 14th Amendment upheld on the basis that the former president engaged in a rebellion or an insurrection against the United States Constitution. Between now and the election, you are likely to hear quite a bit about the 14th Amendment. And one thing to remember is that keeping Trump off the ballot is not anti-democratic. It is upholding the rule of law. Why do you think Trump tried so hard to prove that Obama was born in Africa? Because it would disqualify him from running for the presidency. The rules say you have to be a natural born US citizen to be our president. And the rules also say you can't be president if you led an insurrection against the Constitution. My point is, it ain't over till it's over. And Trump may not end up on the ballot after all. So all we can do is hope, and here's hoping. And as always, my friends, thanks for listening. Hey folks, there are still few tickets left to see me live and in person with my special guest Katie Fang at the City Winery in New York City on December 9th at 2pm. So for tickets and more information, go right now to citywinery.com and hope to see you there. Mea Culpa is written by Paula Killen. Our managing producer and editor is Lisa Orkin. Mea Culpa is a Midas Touch podcast. Executive produced by the Midas Touch Network and LSJ Media Group. 